<laughs> I can see my braces. First of all, they told me. I can't, but I did just take my glasses off. For our listeners, I got off-brand Invisalign right. a couple of days ago. Angel Line, is that what it's called? Angel Aligners. Still Sponsor adjusting. us. So if you hear for the next year and a half a slight lisp <laughs> when I'm speaking, year and a half. it's because <laughs> I have... Plastic. Invisible aligners and I'm trying to straighten my teeth and it will be worth it in the end. I will have beautiful, straight, lovely teeth. Mm-hmm. But right now I have adult braces and for anyone who's considering getting them, I was very shocked to learn that most of my teeth have permanent teeth colored brackets on them that feel like braces when you take the retainers out and look kind of silly. And I was very concerned about making out, but you, it went you fine. Did fine. <laughs> Uh, that was my biggest concern. I didn't mind at all. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Uh, uh, it went fine, uh, but hate them. Mm-hmm. Hate them. I still can't really chew food yet. So just like <laughs> soft stuff. And also it took me 40 minutes to take the retainers out the first time. Yeah. <laughs> also, I was telling Sarah this this morning, but like Sarah's very good at chewing her food. For various reasons. Well, because I had a near-death experience. You had a near-death experience. I'm not. So she's like, ravioli is hard. I'm like, I just swallow it, like, in my mind. But you genuinely are very good at chewing I your food like on you soup should. I once and needed the Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> so there's some um, trauma. There was a big chunk of potato in, in a soup. Sounds shout more like a stew to Shout me. out to Chris... Chris, Chris, Chris. Can't remember. Shout out to Chris for saving my life. He gave me the Heimlich maneuver in college. Tobin. Chris Tobin. Sorry if you wanted to remain anonymous. <laughs> uh, he saved, saved my, my life. life. <laughs> and, um, and now I chew thoroughly. Learned my lesson. Almost died. Anyways, Maggie, ha- you have an update from our last episode. Yes. I Okay, so I started reading a book, and I have gotten so many ideas from this book already, but it's a book about hauntings, women, mm-hmm. like mainly, and how most ghosts are ghosts of women. Yeah. Often of who were wronged by men. There's a whole chapter on witches and like the Salem witch trials, which we will be talking about briefly today. Oh, I'm so excited. But one of the first things in there was about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which we talked about on last week's episode. So nine, if you haven't listened. Yes, go listen. Short version is it was the biggest industrial disaster in New York City history. 123 women, I think, died. I didn't do much research on what the building is now. Mm -hmm. And so now it is a microbiology building for a university. Interesting. It is supposedly haunted, which... Makes sense. So the interesting thing, though, is that it's really hard to tell what is fabricated and what are things like students and faculty are actually experiencing because there aren't many firsthand accounts. Like you can't trace back the origin of some of these things to the first time they happened, which I would love to do a a full episode on this in the future. But there's a really big issue within the paranormal tour industry, the paranormal research industry, where so many of these stories, it's hard to trace the origin And it's many times what you do find is that tour companies, irresponsible tour companies, have kind of planted these stories to make their tours more interesting. And so they'll go, you know, they'll take students, they'll tell them about the actual historical event, and then they'll say, so if you see a ghostly figure jumping out the window and maybe the ghost of one of the girls. And turns out like they're just kind of fabricating this and then those become legends. But okay, so it's called the Brown Building. So some things that are either 
they have been experienced or they're a little bit fabricated from tour companies, legends of students feeling choked, apparitions of sooty and charred women, doors suddenly unlock. Mm. Because if you have listened, you know that locked doors was a huge, huge problem. They locked doors to keep protesters and strikers out to keep people in so they don't steal things, which cause a lot of safety issues. Wisps of smoke in the air, body-shaped shadows falling from windows, the smell of smoke and burned flesh. So there's little concrete evidence, but it is very common for students who are there frequently, not part of the tour companies, to say bad vibes Yeah, a lot. And it talks a lot about residual hauntings and how... It's not necessarily specific people that are haunting, but it's like the leftover energy Hmm. that creates this haunted kind of experience. Because a lot of what we have talked about so far and a lot of ghost stories talk about like specific beings or ghosts that are causing a haunting and residual hauntings are more like, did you ever read Haunting of Hill House Mm -mm. by Shirley Jackson or watch the show either? So no. Shirley Jackson is, you know, a pro at the Gothic. So one of her books is a really good example, The Haunting of Hill House, of a residual haunting, because you don't ever really know what causes the haunting. Mm-hmm. It's just this house is like a evil. Presence. Yeah. This is just this place yeah. itself is like haunted for some reason. There's a local hotel, the Skirbin, that yes. I want to do an episode on because that's the same way. Yeah. There is a specific haunting that people cite, mm-hmm. but I feel like hotels are one where like a lot of weird shit happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's your little update. Some, Some current history on, on the Ash Now Brown building. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you have to rename a building that is renowned for one of the worst fires and you can't call it the Ash building. Obviously, no. it had to be renamed. Yeah, even if it's spelled different. Hi. I'm Maggie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Mad Woman Woman in the Attic. Ho, 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 ho. Let's Let's go, go, girls. My question for you today. Yes. Are dating apps ruining dating or has it always sucked this much? Well, it's both. (laughs) Dating has always sucked. I think in many ways today it's better because we have more agency as women to date for our own personal reasons. We're not looking just for a husband to be able to have income and and open a credit card account and own a home. Obviously, it was more of like a financial kind of exchange and and a seeking security that kind of guided women's dating decisions in many cases. So now I think we have more agency. So in that way, dating is a lot better for women in particular. And it's also less out of necessity. But I do think that it also is now monetized. And I think that more than anything is why dating apps have ruined a lot of things because Mm. they literally would lose money if it's successful. Shani Silver, who I love, she's like a, a single influencer, basically. She talks a lot about dating apps in particular and how they literally profit off of the lack of your success. And yeah. even ones like Hinge that say designed to be deleted, it's like, no, but- Which is a great catchphrase. It is a great catchphrase, but it's just marketing. Like that's yeah. not really true. Yeah, because then they would- Yeah, they have 1% success rate and that's all they need to make people have the hope that this will work. Yeah. And I think that anyone who's claiming otherwise at any of these companies is a liar. Yeah. (laughs) Or delusional, you know, like their own internal propaganda as a company making their employees think, yeah, this is really genuinely our purpose when it's not, it's profit. I completely agree. There's definitely like a weird shift happening because we were the first generation that had social media Mm -hmm. dating apps was the next step in that 
yeah millennials which is our generation Mm -hmm. we had this very weird social interactions i think in high school when social media was first coming out we had aim and it was all brand new and i feel like it almost inhibited us from being able to just walk up to people in real life and introduce ourselves and i think because Gen Z has always had social media, it was less shiny. They've always mm-hmm. had dating apps. I feel like they're actually much better at it. Especially when I was in college, I remember it being like, you would flirt with someone and then most hilarious thing is like your middle school boyfriend. We're gonna chit chat on AIM and then pretend like we literally don't know each other at school. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's less prominent with Gen Z. So I kind of yeah. feel like meeting in person is making a comeback. Mm-hmm. I also think with FaceTime and all that kind of stuff, like we were just doing texts. Yeah. Maybe calls, but not even really. Mm-hmm. We had done texts, we'd done AIM, we'd done messaging. Yeah. And now FaceTime isn't new at this point, but it is by the time a lot of Gen Z was getting into the years where they were legitimately dating, it already existed or was coming out. And yeah. I saw this thing that was talking about how, and I do this, we do this. We'll just FaceTime and not even really talk. We're just hanging out. Yeah. And I think- We do that all the time when we're working. Younger millennials, like, us do that quite a bit. I saw a lot of responses from older millennials and Gen X. They were talking about how much that would stress them out to just be present. Even though we would do that normally in person, there's Mm -hmm. like, I think a lot of mid and elder millennials and above struggle with that transition from, okay, we've been texting. That means whenever you are communicating, you are communicating. There's not, you're not spending that in between time in the middle of a conversation together in silence. Yeah. So I think a lot of 35 and up struggle with that kind of yeah in between time and any normal conversation that younger millennials and indigenous are a lot more comfortable with yeah and i feel like there's kind of like a social media digital fatigue happening mm-hmm. especially with the generations we're the tail end of millennials mm-hmm. and we have a lot of crossover with gen z i definitely feel like you just get to a point where you're like fuck this. I just want human connection that is actually real. Yeah. And I know tons of people who have met their husband or wife right. on dating apps. And I think it can be successful, but I definitely feel like there's a wave of just getting so tired of, and it's so many people. We even talked about that literally it's like, like two so, nights ago. Yeah. You get so fatigued by the amount of messages and they're so superficial and 95% of them go nowhere, mm-hmm. don't even lead to a first date. It's just like mentally exhausting and just feels so stupid and bad. Yeah. You really aren't connecting with anyone. Mm -hmm. And I will say I have a very small pool of evidence, which I will use as scientific proof, as I always do. My small pool of evidence is so far I've probably gone on as many dating app dates as I have people I met in person. And the only ones that went anywhere were people I met in person Mm -hmm. or met through friends or met in person first. Mm -hmm. So I will use my small pool of evidence to say that that scientifically proves that meeting people in person is more effective. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I I have a very different history, but even with me, I've gone on dates with a lot more people and I don't think I ever made it to more than a second date with anyone I met on an app. So one of my papers I wrote for human development, we talked about the different stages of development and related them to a current theme. And so I talked about, I think, the sixth sixth stage of development, which is intimacy and isolation, the phase of life where you're deciding what is kind of that part of my life going to look like. Mm -hmm. So anywhere from 19 to 40 is usually when that's happening. We're in that right now. And I talked about the increase in like singlehood, whether it's from good romantic or just like we don't have to have romantic relationships as women to survive like we used to and what that means for our need for intimacy. He sent me a message and was like, good paper, blah, blah, blah. Here are my thoughts. 
and he mentioned dating apps and stuff in particular, I started thinking about how I think a lot of why I get frustrated with dating apps is you are jumping immediately into a date with the intention, whether it's a fling, whether it's you're looking for a life partner, whatever, you're still jumping into your first meeting with the intention of almost forcing some type of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And that is exhausting for one thing. Like you see all the TikToks where it's like you switch from tell me all your hopes and dreams and you know, you have these really intimate relationships and then it's like, what's your favorite color? Yeah. You start all over again. And I think that taking away that organic stage of meeting someone and seeing if you have chemistry at first and not being in this, like you're with your friends or you're out in public, there's something to be said for that kind of natural organic development of attraction and intimacy. Yeah. I also think there are so many intangible things when you meet someone in person for the first time that make up attraction. Yes. On the one hand, it's nice on a dating app to look at someone on paper first Mm -hmm. and say like, are we actually compatible? But I think the reason so many first dates don't really move forward for Mm -hmm. whatever reason, you're missing out on all of this stuff that makes up attraction. And a Mm -hmm. lot of times you can read someone on a dating app and be like, oh my God, we're so compatible. And then you meet and it just doesn't work. Or you right. just don't like them or they come off completely different or the way they mm-hmm. portray themselves isn't really who or they, they are. On, on charge for a homicide, <laughs> which it can happen. And, and a you know, someone you meet in person. <laughs> so I think when you meet someone in person, you can just subconsciously get a read on so many things of compatibility. Yes. There's just like feelings you get about yeah. a person when you meet them and you can't really get that digitally. I am a really good example. I don't think my texting style really makes sense until you meet me. Mm-hmm. I text deadpan. I talk deadpan. I think my texting comes off a certain way until you meet me. Yeah. And I've had people literally text me first and then say like, oh, your humor makes more sense now. Yeah. I think I was taking you the wrong yeah, way. Yeah. I mean, because even like as best friends, there are sometimes where I'm like, that didn't mean anything from Sarah. Like yeah, I'm reading I'm into a very, that. Like, I text like a... Uh, fuck boy, basically. Yeah. Like I text like one word answers to my friends, to people I'm dating, but I talk that way too. Yeah. That's how I speak. And so that's yeah. how I text. I have noticed a couple of times people being like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. You're just kind of a dry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bitch. <laughs> oh, I get it. That's just who you are. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I also think all of this means that many people who are really wanting to find a partner are of whatever type are going on more dates because you have to jump immediately into the dating phase when it's like if we were still meeting in person all the time, you would know pretty soon if you have a class with someone in college if you want to actually go on a date or not. And so you would be getting to know people more often. You would be meeting people more often. You would be maybe sussing things out on if it could be romantic more often. But the number of actual dates you would have to go on – would not be as high. Yeah. And that I think in general causes a massive level of exhaustion Fatigue, that we, yeah. for many of us at this point, it is what we've known for most of our dating lives Yeah, is all we know. It, dating just feels really miserable but in general. I also think that has kind of made people better at dating. I think like in some ways it takes the human connection out of dating, but in other ways, if it does work out for you, gets you a more compatible partner. It is forced intimacy, but I also think you're going into it with the intention of intimacy. Yeah, and I don't like that. 
I think it's like a double-edged sword. Yeah. It's like, and it depends on what you like and what you're looking for. For me, that part's really hard. Like I look at pictures on a dating app and I'm immediately turned off. Yeah. Just by a photo, not because people are unattractive, but I'm just like, you seem like a threat. You seem like yeah. a threat, which is my own problem. <laughs> but I can't get past that. This is on paper and turn yeah. this person into a real person where I'm like, I feel good and safe and not quite so anxious about meeting this person in real life yeah. and taking that to the next step. Yeah, where I think with my history, it's the opposite. I was in a 10-year relationship with someone I really love. What led to the end of our relationship was there at the beginning. And I missed it for 10 years or Mm -hmm. I like kind of willfully ignored it. I wasn't really paying attention to the right things. I was kind of ignoring a lot of other feelings that I had the whole time we were together Mm -hmm. that I really should have listened to more. And so I think when I show up to a date and I don't already feel attraction with someone, it makes me feel little more secure in the sense that I have a clear head here. I can really listen to what they're saying. I can pay attention to how they're interacting with me mm-hmm. before I get confused. <laughs> you yeah. know, I think that gives me a little more power in the situation or mm-hmm. a, set, a feeling of power where it's like, okay, I can really go into it level headed. Right. It takes some of the chaotic fun out of it for sure, which you know I thrive on. I don't. Yeah, because then you say that and I'm thinking also the exact opposite. If I don't have at least some level of that superficial, even if it is surface level, physical, brief flirtation level of attraction, all I will see is red flags. So I'm more level headed when there's a little part that's balancing out the fear and the high alert. Because if there's not... If I don't have any single reason to go on a second date with you, because just, uh, I maybe could, this could go somewhere is not enough for me to put myself through that again. I think that's why that's really hard for me. Yeah, I get that. All right, should we get into our story? Yeah. Meow, 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 meow. Let's go cats. Oh, story time. Story time. Story. Okay, I have been so excited about this episode. (laughs) Shout out to our friend Michelle. I had put a poll on Instagram asking if anyone had any like topics they wanted us to cover for the 10th episode because we're excited that maybe it's not a huge deal. But it feels like a milestone. I feel like here it's like, yeah, 10 episodes feels like a huge milestone. And we've been really enjoying the process and excited about people listening and getting excited about it. And so I posted a poll just asking you know, what people wanted to listen to. And our friend Mm -hmm. Michelle had just been talking to me about my cat. And and she was like, you should totally do the crazy cat lady stereotype. And that's what we're talking about today. All right. Meow, meow. I'm going to just anytime I can fit in a meow this whole time. Almost a year ago, I separated from my ex-husband, moved halfway across the country and found myself single and living alone for the first time in my adult life. But as the weeks passed... I started to notice that I wasn't quite alone. Each day when I sat out on my porch for my morning coffee, I would catch glimpses of a fat tabby cat slinking around my yard. Suddenly one evening, I was returning home late from a bar. I climbed the steps to my front porch and there she was, my stray cat, waiting for me. She walked right up to me and let me pet her. And since then we've developed a close bond. I call her Goose. She calls me mother. (laughs) Nine times out of 10, when I open my front door, Goose appears within 30 seconds. She sleeps on the same chair on my porch each night, which I now refer to as Goose's chair. Mm -hmm. 
She waits there for me to come home at night and scratch her head before I head inside. And I leave a little dish of food and water out for her. She will sit with me for hours and curl up on my lap. And I often get emotional when I think about her because I feel like she was sent to me at a time in my life when I needed a buddy. And there's something so beautiful about having a pet that I don't really own. She isn't confined to me. I have no real obligation to her. And yet we still show up for each other day in and day out. And in a weird way, Goose has taught me a lot about love, specifically how to hold my loved ones with an open palm rather than a death grip and trust that the real ones will stay. (laughs) Maggie is sobbing. It's really beautiful. (laughs) Should I reread it not laughing? (laughs) No, it's funny. I'm so sorry. I did not mean to wreck you. We just danced to Alec and quick. Wow. Anyways, as someone who has always been a dog person, the most surprising turn of my new single life has been my infatuation with this cat. And I often joke that she could smell that I was newly single and was sent to me by the Crazy Cat Lady Association to convert me. (laughs) Cat distribution Um, system. (laughs) But am I a crazy cat lady? What's so crazy about loving cats? Why is it worse if you're a single woman? And where did this stereotype even come from? Beautiful. Sorry, I made you stop. <laughs> wow, that really just like punched me in the feels. I'm just really happy you have that cat. <laughs> I swear I have deep emotions. <laughs> I just don't talk about them. <laughs> okay, so what is the crazy cat lady trope? For thousands of years, cats have been associated with women for better or for worse. But the crazy cat lady trope has become super common in pop culture. From the office's Angela, who I love, to Queen Mother Taylor Swift, we see the trope of the cat lady everywhere. So what is it? Crazy cat ladies are often single women who are older than marrying age. Mm -hmm. The perception is that they're replacing the affection of both a lover and children with cats, which I messaged some of our cat lady friends um, before doing this episode. And right before I sat down, our friend Kayla sent me a voice memo talking about this, that one of the reasons people have such a problem with it is that you're replacing the affection mm-hmm. of the nuclear family. Yeah, it's like, oh, how embarrassing, how pathetic. Yeah. And like, especially for women, that nuclear family unit is what gives your life meaning. Mm-hmm. And without that, what do you have? You have nothing. And how dare a woman be content without it? Right. And so if you have this cat that's fulfilling that need for you, that that can Mm -hmm. upset people who have a problem with women finding love and comfort and affection in something other than your stereotypical man and wife and two and a half kids and a white right. fence. Thank you, Kayla, for your thoughts on that. In addition to being single and alone, the trope has undertones of mental instability. Specifically, women who own more than one cat are seen as mentally unwell or crazy, which is interesting because owning pets is scientifically proven to improve mental health. As we have our, our emotional support pod dog, Yes, who is very much like a cat. Fun fact for the for the listeners. If I do the search thing in my photos in my iPhone, yeah. I can't search dog for photos of her because yeah, they won't she has show up. Ears. I have to search cat and then it's all of her photos. Yeah. And so specifically cat owners have significantly lower risks of both stroke and heart attack, which are often associated with prolonged stress. Yeah. 
And the idea that the crazy cat lady trope is only attributed to women is even more absurd, considering that more millennial men own cats than women, with 48% of millennial men really? owning cats compared to only 35% of millennial women. I did not know that. Weird. Uh, <laughs> so if the trope is so detached from reality, right. where did it even come from? It used to be thought that cats were first domesticated in ancient Egypt, but we know now that wild cats lived among the people of Mesopotamia over 100,000 years ago, and they were first domesticated there approximately 12,000 BCE, at about the same time that dogs, sheep, and goats were domesticated. But our first indication of cats being associated with women is found in ancient religious imagery. So we have Bastet is the ancient Egyptian goddess of domesticity, childbirth, and women's secrets. Um, and she was depicted as half cat, half woman. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the Chinese cat goddess Li Shu, which was a symbol of fertility. And Freya, the goddess of beauty and strength in Norse mythology, rode a chariot led by cats. So, which is so cool. Yeah. So there are tons of theories as to why cats are perceived as feminine. Some think it's the slinky way they walk or that they're mysterious. Some believe that it's that their affection must be earned, which men may associate with women. Mm -hmm. And others think it's as simple as their facial features matching the feminine mm -hmm. standard of beauty. But it's wild to think that this idea goes back thousands of years and we still see it like in cartoons today. Yeah, that is so weird. Yeah. So fast forward to the Middle Ages. Cats were important throughout the Middle Ages to kill rodents, obviously. Because <laughs> you would be useless. Yeah, because cats are mm, killing machines. <laughs> and they were often the only animals allowed in religious spaces like monasteries or even like food storage areas mm -hmm. for that reason, because they would prevent rats yeah. from spreading diseases. I have no mice or rats around because I have so many straight Oh, cats. yeah. Yeah. But the Middle Ages is also where we start to see the feminine perception of cats turn negative. Mm. And who do we think is responsible? Men. That's right. The Roman Catholic Church. Oh, <laughs> same energy. Yeah. Same energy. The worst of the men. Uh, so according to one of my sources, KQED, in an effort to rid the world of non-Christian gods, deities other than the Holy Trinity were stigmatized and rebranded as evil. Even worse, cats garnered a reputation for being minions of Satan. Cool. So why did cats get such a bad reputation? <laughs> because oh, they were horny. A bad reputation. <laughs> because they were what? Because they were horny. Cats, as we know, are always having babies and making sweet, sweet love in the back oh, alleys. Yes. <laughs> that was sober. Thank you. <laughs> the sex lives of cats were conflated with lustful, sinful, feminine sexuality. And according to the historian James Serpell, cats were seen as lecherous animals that actively wheedled the males on to sexual congress. <laughs> so at this point, wow. many people considered cats demonic and associated them with darkness and witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And so sad. Popes and high-ranking officials condemned cats and the animals were often tortured and killed for this reason. So from the beginning of the Middle Ages to the end, you see this shift of like cats being really utilized to kill rodents and being like allowed in spaces other animals weren't Are to you being punished. Talk about the bubonic plague. 
No. Because, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting Because you. the bubonic plague was spread by rats, but so were most diseases. Well, yeah, but the bubonic plague, because this was, I think, around the time they killed so many cats, the, they weren't around to kill rats, which oh, means there was an increase in the, and the bubonic plague is likely. And just the spread of disease. The spread of it was likely increased because yeah. there were fewer cats to take care of the rats. Yeah. And the, so it's towards like end of the Middle Ages is yeah. when we see this shift. And in a Guardian article I read, it said, in Malleus Maleficarum, which is the landmark medieval treatise mm-hmm. on witchcraft, a 13th century folk story is recounted whereby three witches turned themselves into cats, attacked a man on the street, and accused him of assault in court, showing the marks on their bodies. From then on, witches were believed to have cats as familiars, which a familiar is a spirit guardian that they used to do their Mm -hmm. bidding, kind of. They were also believed to change into felines at night. Mm -hmm. So we see throughout the Middle Ages this turning of feminine cat imagery to negative, demonic, and then towards the end of the Middle Ages, we start seeing it associated with witchcraft, specifically. So this idea of cats being a pagan symbol really comes to a head during the 16th century witch craze. Mm -hmm. So one example is Agnes Waterhouse, who was one of the first women executed under the Witchcraft Act of 1562 in England. She was accused of witchcraft along with two other women, her daughter Joan Waterhouse and her sister Elizabeth Francis. Agnes confesses to having been a witch and that her familiar or her supernatural guardian was a white spotted cat by the name of Satan. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) And according to all three of their confessions, the cat was used to do their bidding, which included a wide variety of crimes, (laughs) including murdering animals, Elizabeth's baby. She had the cat kill her own baby and several adult men. And the funniest of the murders was Elizabeth, the sister. Uh Uh-huh confesses to all these crimes, like murder crimes that the cat did for her, apparently. She doesn't get executed. And then years and years later, like seven years later, she ends up executed for something else. Agnes, her big crime that I read about, at least, I don't know if she killed people too. Mm -hmm. Her neighbor was bothering her. So she sent the cat to kill like all of their livestock. (laughs) (laughs) Vengeful. And then it said that she That's a mood, honestly. (laughs) It said that she had the cat in like a bed of wool and she needed to repurpose the wool for something else. So she turned the cat into a toad. But the other account said that the cat turned itself into a toad. (laughs) It was all pretty funny. But tragic because none of them were witches, but they did obviously commit crimes. Right. Agnes was executed. Elizabeth was executed later. And I think Joan was not. And of course... We can't talk about cats and witches without mentioning the Salem witch trials. Yes. So by the time we get to the late 1600s, the idea of the familiar is well known and people are often on the lookout for possessed animals. And around the time of the Salem witch trials, it's kind of like a paranoia about Mm -hmm. these possessed animals. And there's a lot of accounts of people noticing animals acting weird and then killing them. And the theory was if you try to kill a familiar and it's the devil it won't die so there's all these accounts of them if you if you don't drown you're a witch so then you yeah so there's all these accounts of them shooting dogs and Mm. then the dogs die and then they're like oh never mind i guess he was innocent so people are on the lookout for possessed animals actually the list of accused witches from the salem witch trials includes two dogs yeah (laughs) 
which I had never heard before. So Tituba mm-hmm. was one of the first women to be accused in the Salem witch trials. Um, and she confessed to having seen two cats claiming that they told her to serve them. And then another accused witch, Sarah Wilson, yeah. claimed later in her confession that the devil visited her in the form of a cat. Mm-hmm. And then Samuel Wardwell, who was one of the executed men, yeah. who was executed for being a witch, he claimed that 20 years prior to the trials, he encountered a group of cats behind the Bradstreet family's house, which they were like a well-known family in Salem. And I pulled a quote from his confession that said, Wardwell saw some cats together with the appearance of a man who called himself a prince of the air and promised him that he would live comfortably and be a captain and required that Wardwell honor him. And Wardwell was one of the last individuals to be executed as an accused witch in Salem, Mm -hmm. and he was hanged along with seven others. So you see throughout all of the Salem witch trials, it's this like paranoia of the familiar animals, but also accounts from the accused themselves that they had visions of cats that they were told by cats that the cats were the devil and that they should serve the cats so it became this like really prominent imagery mm-hmm. and when we have like witch stories today like even like hocus pocus cats are a huge theme yeah. in like today's witch stories and that's where that came from. Mm -hmm. With all the Salem stuff, like I've read so much about that in the book. I was just going over like Sarah Good and like, you know, all of the four-year-old who was like, oh God, it's terrible. All those names I know, but I'd never really heard the parts about the cats specifically. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I was like, I know these names. I've heard their stories. Yeah. And a lot of the lore, I feel like that's not lore, it's history. Some of those details, I think, maybe have been o- omitted or passed over in a lot of the accounts. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if it's just this assumption that that trope isn't that significant. I wonder if people don't see that connects to a much larger thread of crazy cat ladies and witches. Well, and there was, because I was specifically looking for like yes in relation mm-hmm. to the Salem witch trials. There was so much animal cruelty mm-hmm. as part of this witch craze, not just in Salem, everywhere that there were witch hunts, mm-hmm. animal cruelty was part of it because mm-hmm. they would torture these animals thinking that they were being used by these witches, mm-hmm. which is crazy because when you think about a dog killing someone's goat, yeah, that's just an animal mm-hmm. being an animal, yeah, you know, and I, I even when they were talking about like people being scared that animals were possessed. If you've ever seen a cat get the zoomies, yeah, you would think it's possessed. Right. So it's just so absurd yeah, that they use that to like justify executing mm-hmm. people. And we all know at this point too, that the trials throughout the witch hunts mm-hmm. were so abusive to get these confessions out of people. And a lot yeah. of what they said never happened. No, most of it. And a lot of what this book that I'm re- reading is talking about too is about how it was many times young girls who mm. are the accusers yeah. of other people. And there's some research that points to this being a method of gaining a sense of control in a oh, world yeah. where they were very, very under control. Like they were able, it was almost like finding agency, especially yeah. if they were already under scrutiny for something. That was a common thing, even in the few I read yeah. about for this episode young girls were brought in and accused and the only way they could get out of being executed was to blame it on someone else and parents would 
say to their kids, accuse this family because we have a beef yep. with them. They're a competitor. Yeah. I had an affair with someone and we need to cover it up. Yeah. They would send their daughters out to make these accusations yeah. to have social sway yeah. or social power or to cover things up. It was interesting, like the themes of piety versus mm-hmm. witchcraft. When you think about this period in time, the sexual repression of young mm-hmm. girls. Yes. How afraid you would be if anyone doing anything sexually suggestive is lumped into this mm-hmm. crime that you're executed for. Yeah. And how scared you would be to misstep. Yeah. By the early 18th century, the witch trials were widely recognized as a grave miscarriage of justice. Right. And we start to see the perception of their female owners shift. So during the witch craze, single women with cats were feared and seen as powerful and demonic. And according to KQED, they said in the early 18th century, single women with cats were suddenly transformed in the public eye from frightening fiends to figures to be pitied. Mm. Unfortunately, because single women of the time were so often viewed as a nuisance, because without access to jobs, unmarried women had to rely on the kindness of relatives for financial support, Mm -hmm. the cat lady became a figure of ridicule. And as resentments towards these women grew, so did the popularity of the stereotype. So that's where we see the shift from being afraid of the cat lady to, oh, she's so pathetic and pitiful. And the single woman in the family would have to be taken in by maybe her brothers or her cousins or her married sisters. And Mm -hmm. you're cared for by them for the rest of your life because Mm -hmm. you can't work or make your own money. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this more like pitiful imagery that we still have today. Look, I've always been a dog person more than a cat person. But this is, I can feel myself wanting to get a cat after this episode, just like out of spite for any stereotypes. Like, And so at this time, cats were considered the friend of the friendless. Mm-hmm. We start to see this idea of the spinster and the mm-hmm. old maid associated with cats. There's a couple like really famous cartoons, which we can include on Instagram and on Patreon, showing old maids and their cats. And this is really where we see the idea of cats replacing human affection mm-hmm. and this perception that these women couldn't get a husband to love them or couldn't have children to love Mm -hmm. them. And so they need to replace that with a cat when most of the time it was just a companion that they were happy with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And you see it in cartoons from the time. And then in the early 20th century, women are getting closer and closer to gaining the right to vote Mm -hmm. and cats become a staple in anti-suffrage propaganda, which I, this is the first time I've ever learned this. A quote from one of my sources KQED said this served two purposes. First, depicting suffragettes as cats acted as a means to reduce women to the status of inconsequential trifling animals. Second, associating women's rights activists with this particular pet acted as a wink and a nod to the public about what kind of woman wanted to vote. Lonely, bitter man-haters. And it was effective, but not effective enough. And according to The Guardian, in the 1900s, anti-suffragette propaganda used images of cats to portray women as silly, useless, catty, and ridiculous in their attempt to enter political life, which obviously it didn't work. Women got the right to vote. I saw so many anti-suffrage propaganda with cats. That's wild. I had not heard of that. Yeah, and it really was to undermine women in a way that made them look silly. Yeah, like, oh. And it's so wild. And that's so embarrassing for you. I guess I've never really thought that deeply about it, that like Mm -hmm. the imagery of cats and women is that pervasive that they didn't even have to say it. Just putting a poster of a cat communicates that to people. 
It's so crazy. So by the late 1900s, we start to see more women flipping the script on cat lady stereotypes. And one really interesting example of this is Carolee Schneeman, who did performance art that juxtaposed footage of her cat with her own raw sexuality, which culminated in 1967's Fuses, which is an 18 minute film in which Schneeman has sex with her boyfriend while her cat watches. <laughs> Wait, what year was this? 1967. Wow. Yeah, that feels... Yeah. Right, as far as timing. <laughs> yeah, and a more well-known example of this is the 1961 film Breakfast at Tiffany's, where we see the beautiful and iconic Audrey Hepburn portrayed as a different kind of cat lady. So it still plays into the trope in that she's like a single, lonely woman, and there's a lot of scenes with her and this cat. Her character, Holly Golightly, has a cat named Cat, and there's a scene where she compares herself to the cat not having a real name and not really yeah. having like a family. Yeah. But she adores the cat. Mm. And I read something that said like Audrey Hepburn was very well known for loving animals. Mm -hmm. And there is a scene where I can't remember his character's name, but the love interest in the yeah. movie throws the cat out the window of a car in the rain. And she like gets out in the rain and puts the cat under her coat, you know, and it's this beautiful orange cat. I love it so much. <laughs> but even though she's portrayed as the single crazy cat lady, she's still desirable and sexy and it's Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. she's the standard of beauty of that age. Right. And so it's a departure from the typical crazy cat lady motif where mm -hmm. she still has some of the characteristics in her life, but she's very desirable and beautiful mm -hmm. and has a love, love interest in the movie and it's mm -hmm. kind of poking holes in that right. stereotype. But even though women have kind of tried to turn it on its head and I think successfully done so over yeah. the years, we still see the crazy cat lady in pop culture today. So we have Angela from The Office is one of my favorite examples. And the, the jokes about the cats are Which hilarious. one is Angela? She's very petite and blonde. Her like main character trait is yeah. that she is a crazy cat lady. Mm -hmm. But she has this normal office job. She has like framed photos of her cats. And there's an episode where like one of her cats is dead in the freezer. There's an episode where one of the cats ends up in the ceiling <laughs> of the office. It's the the jokes are hilarious, but yeah. she is like my favorite cat lady in pop culture. Mm -hmm. There's also Dr. Eleanor Abernathy from The Simpsons, which I don't watch The Simpsons. Me either. But she is a previously successful, very intelligent woman who retires and gets all these cats and then she is crazy and like loses her mind mm -hmm. and she's always speaking in gibberish and has a million cats around mm -hmm. her. There's like a really famous SNL skit that Robert De Niro did called Christmas with the Cat Lady where he's dressed up as a cat lady and has like real cats crawling over his lap on this SNL skit. There's a lot of portrayals that perpetuate it. I think it's okay to enjoy them and think right. they're funny. Yeah. But it, it's interesting that it's like still so prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I think especially like that portrayal today is most often associated with having more than one cat or yeah. hoarding cats, which there is a grain of truth to. Statistically, men and women are equally as likely to be hoarders of just like general items, but women are more likely to hoard animals or pets. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
rooms. <laughs> and some of them turn it into senior rescues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing. But, you know, done well and sustainably and, you know. I lovely. think that is a healthy outlet for your hoarding. Yeah. Turn it hoarding into, like, a rescue. Legitimate hoarding is Legitimate is hoarding is really animals. terrifying and scary. Yeah. Okay, so our friend EJ was one of the people who responded to me about mm-hmm. cat lady thing. And she said to look into toxoplasmosis. So she's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you have to look into toxoplasmosis. And it came up in one of the sources I was reading. Here's a quote from The Guardian. It says, another recent theory is to do with a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. This tiny critter infects rats and mice and changes their behavior by, scientists believe, creating an attraction to cat urine so it can wind up in the stomach of a cat where it reproduces. It also infects between 30 and 60% of people. Scientists are exploring evidence that toxoplasmosis could create behavioral changes in people leading to lots of excited articles wondering if the parasite is a clue to explaining the phenomenon of the crazy cat lady. And this is a theory that is specifically tied to that character in The Simpsons, that they're playing into that. But the parasite contains an enzyme that creates dopamine, which is associated with risky and impulsive behavior, among other things. But so far, the data is inconclusive. But it's just kind of like a weird scientific theory as to like why maybe someone who owns many cats... Mm -hmm could actually be a little crazy be a little crazy Mm -hmm. and we even see the negative connotations of cats in our vernacular speech Mm -hmm. with words like pussy or catty which are almost always associated with feminine traits of weakness or Mm -hmm. superficial and used to belittle both men and women Mm -hmm. with these feminine traits right my favorite theory as to why people but specifically men hate Mm -hmm. cats like strongly hate cats in a way we don't really hear people talk about other animals. Yeah. Is the idea that they are consent animals. And I actually asked Mm -hmm. one of our favorite cat lady friends, Janelle, Mm -hmm. uh, to send me her thoughts on this. She sent me a really long voice memo, which I kind of consolidated into a quote. She said, I find there are people, mostly men, who have this extreme dislike of cats and there's never a reason why. And I don't think any of these men realize that this is rooted in misogyny, but I think it's very much rooted in the fact that cats are consent animals. They have very strong boundaries, whereas dogs are seen as man's best friend, loyal, they need you, etc. It's a human experience to want to be loved, but Mm -hmm. men in so many ways have been conditioned to believe that love and affection should be given to them in the way that dogs do. Mm. So when they don't get it, they feel like something's been taken away from them. And there are a lot of parallels between how these men act in dating situations and when an animal doesn't give them the affection they want. And then she gave an example of her cat, Aria, (laughs) who I am obsessed with. Yeah. And she said, my cat, Aria, is a very anxious cat and super attached to me. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people not to pet her and then they will anyways. And when she swats at them, they get mad. Yeah. And she just expressed that, like, that's so frustrating. It's like, I told you my cat's boundaries. You didn't respect them. Of course she's going to swat at you. Yeah. I warned you and you can't get upset about it. Yeah. When you didn't respect what the owner is telling you, Mm -hmm. like how they're telling you to interact with that animal. And this is one of the reasons I personally feel like it's such a huge green flag when men have cats or love cats. Because I feel like like how they interact with cats tells you a lot about how they respect boundaries and how they feel about building trust over time. Mm-hmm. And I have an anonymous example. I have thoughts on this. Because I dated a man who would call himself a cat person mm-hmm. and had a cat who he really loved. Like he yeah. genuinely loved. But when I would go over to his house, his cat was 
also kind of skittish. Mm-hmm. Like she took a really long time to warm up to me. Mm-hmm. You know, she was kind of aloof. She would like mm-hmm. hide in the closet a lot of times. And I noticed with him, it's like, obviously he loves his cat and his cat loves him. But there were times when she would very clearly not want to be picked up and he would pick her up anyways. Mm -hmm. Or there were times when she like clearly didn't like being on her back and he would put her on her back anyways. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. all the time, but it was something that I noticed about him and it really gave me the ick. Why would you have an animal that has such clear boundaries and then not respect them and make them feel uncomfortable? Yeah, it's a cat. It's your pet, but, like, that doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want with them. Yeah. And it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Not to make this podcast about dogs, but I feel very similar. Having a small dog who is very cat-like, who has trauma and injuries, is older in particular, but small dogs in general. I, men, so many men hate small dogs. Yeah. And you go onto all of these pages and you look in the comments, it's like, it's always the little ones who are so evil and blah, blah, blah. And I, it's a rat, you know, that terrible, terrible things about small dogs. And I think it's a similar issue. Yeah. A lot of people naturally respect the boundaries of bigger dogs because they're bigger. They're like, oh, that could do damage. You're not going to go to a Rottweiler you don't know. I'm not going to go up to Carl, our friend's Rottweiler, and get in his face and be like, I love you. Yeah, you know? he'll bite your throat. Right. And even if he won't, because like he's always been really sweet to me. He, I, I don't have never felt threatened by Carl, but I'm gentle. And I think a lot of people are that way with big dogs just because of their size. Yeah. And they respect the boundaries. With small dogs, much like cats, they just assume you can't hurt me so I can do anything. Yeah. Pick and them the up, number throw of them times, around. Yeah. Luna has, and she doesn't do this to me very often, but like very early on, she set boundaries because she was nervous around me. Yeah. I couldn't be in her face. I couldn't get too close to her. She slept on the end of the bed. And I was like, okay, I have to respect that. Anytime a man would be over in particular and would get up in her business and she would snap, I don't reprimand her for that. And I think that a lot of times people see that and say, oh, people don't train their little dogs well. I'm like, this dog is tiny. She's scared. Small scared she specifically is fragile she's very easily hurt and she's traumatized and also she was abused so it's like and it's not that you can't train a dog dog. out of that yeah can my dog do tricks no she's not well trained in that sense but she behaves well she's very very sweet she occasionally gets into cardboard (laughs) and trash if it's there like she has her typical bad dog behaviors but she's a very good kind well-behaved dog But because she has to defend herself more often than a big dog does, people think that, oh, well, she's not well-trained. People don't train their small dogs, et cetera. And I think it's a very similar thing because, like, with the men's situation, saying stuff like that about cats because you can't just go up and pick up Luna all you want and smush her in your face. Especially if she doesn't know you yet. Yeah. And I had, I think I even had a friend who was here one time and picked up Luna a certain way and shook her. And I saw in Luna's yeah. eyes, she was about to get pissed. Luna has growled at me one time. Yeah. And it was because I just, and she loves me. I'm yes. her second mommy. She yes. literally loves me to pieces. Literally. And I love, it's mutual. Mm-hmm. And we were watching a movie and I accidentally just leaned on her back. And I know she has a bad back. Yeah. My dog also has mm-hmm. a back, bad back. So I'm really careful around her. And I just mm-hmm. accidentally pressed on her back. Yeah. She knows me really well, mm-hmm. and she still growled at me, and I immediately was like, oh, "Yeah, I'm so sorry." I feel really strongly that I think people all, don't bother to read body language. That either. all animals have those boundaries. Yes, I think cats make you 
respect them. Yes. Yeah. You know, they're still really little animals, but mm-hmm. cats will swat at you. They'll bite you. Their claws mm-hmm. are sharper than most older dogs yeah. and they'll really hurt you. And so people kind of have that reaction to them. That's like, mm-hmm. okay. And like little dogs will bite. Most of my friends yeah. with little dogs, yeah. their dogs are the only dogs I know that bite. Yeah. And it's because they're scared. I have a big dog. Mm-hmm. I have a big naughty dog, but he is so good natured and so mm-hmm. sweet and would never bite someone. Right. I didn't train him that way. He yeah. just, that's who he is. But he has a back injury and mm-hmm. he's been much more sensitive about it lately. Men are the only ones who come over to my house and I'll say, hey, don't be rough with him. Yeah. He has a bad back. It, it'll fuck up his next couple hurt. of days. Yeah. And his way of communicating, if you move him in a way or you touch his back, is he will kind of like screech and it startles people. Yeah. And I'm like, he's a dog that's never going to bite you, but he'll screech. It's always, I didn't do it. And it's like, like, you did. And you obviously did because he had that reaction. And that's okay. Our friend Dan was trying to teach him how to shake the one day. Right. Obviously didn't hurt him, but he grabbed his arm the wrong way and Ranger went, you know, and Dan felt so bad. And I was like, it's okay, but just listen to him. Like, yeah. listen to his signals. And I feel like a lot of times people don't learn animal body language mm-hmm. at all. They think, oh, they're being cute. They're being this. And it's like, no, they're telling you that you need to get the fuck away from them. Yeah. I think a lot of pet owners don't do a great job of respecting their pet's boundaries. But I think the thing about like cats specifically being, mm-hmm. I think it's consent and also trust. Even my cat Goose, it probably took two months of her like circling my porch, observing me Yeah. before she came up to me. Mm-hmm. She came up to me several times before she let me pet her. Mm-hmm. And then it took a couple of days after that before she would sit with me. Mm-hmm. And then there was probably three months after that where she would sit with me. But if someone new came over she would get scared and run away. Mm-hmm. And now it's at a point where if someone comes up and they're with me, it's like full trust with me. Until they're full, not. And then she's like, I will defend full trust, <laughs> my <yeah>. mom. <laughs> oh, she, that is my favorite story. of This cat who is not my cat. I had a negative interaction with a man on my porch and she had met him many times, loved him, would let him pick her up like a baby. Yeah. And she came up on the porch while he was talking to me and I was upset and she walked up to him as if she was going to let him pet her. He reached out to pet her. She was like, skirt, came and sat in front of my feet. And she's never done that facing him like the whole time we talked in between the two of us. And I was like, that's my bitch. (laughs) But it took a really long time to build trust. And I never forced it with her. I think that's why we have such a strong bond. That's why I get along with Arya. Arya, the cat that we just mentioned from our friend. She's always mentioned that she's one of the I'm one of the few people she like likes. I mean, she'll swat at me occasionally and I immediately like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just, I don't even pet her. I just kind of put my fingers and out and she so, kind of comes up and sits so by nervous. me and stuff. She's so nervous. You just have to respect her space. Yeah. And she's fine. She won't like come up to you mm-hmm. aggressively. It's like if you you're in her it. face, she'll swat at you and it's like, Okay, this is your house. No problem. Yeah. You know, and she's such a sweet cat. Yeah. It's just like... And it never, at least like with me, I think she knows at this point I respect her boundaries. So if I'm like kind of playing with her a little bit, have my hands out, the first swat I get is never with claws or anything like that. Like it's not harmful. It's just a whoosh. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Love you. Yeah. Go have fun. Men hate that. (laughs) I have like a couple of discussion questions, but my last note before I wrap up the actual story is that I learned a new word. Okay. Ilerophile, which means cat lover. 
cute. And I am now a proud member of the Iloropile community. Yeah. So one of the things I was thinking about while I was doing this research, I feel like women are always belittled and patronized for the things we love. And I feel like cats fit into that. Yeah. Like men love dogs. Mm -hmm. Obviously there's, those are just stereotypes. I don't think that's even like true that most yeah. men love dogs, but mm -hmm. I feel like there's a stereotype that dogs are man's best friend. Mm -hmm. And that's seen as such a like sacred bond. Mm -hmm. And then the female version of that is crazy cat lady. It's like, it's why? Like, yeah. That trend in general, like I think it was both the Beatles. I think Harry Styles actually said some of it when interviewers asked them, how do you feel about like all of your audience being teen girls? Like, is that annoying? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, they literally are the driving force of why we're successful. Yeah. And in general, women are as consumers, the driving force behind the <laughs> economy in general, as far as like what becomes popular, music, fashion, yeah. all of these things like that are brought into style yeah. or brought into popularity by women and their dedication and passion about those things. Or even Taylor Swift, I think, is a great example. I was about to say. Like, men, specifically, and women with a lot of internalized misogyny, hate on Taylor Swift specifically. Yeah. <laughs> because she is so popular among women. Taylor Swift is not my genre or type of music. Yeah. So I'm saying this as someone who's like, I don't think I could fairly classify myself as a Swifty. No, I'm not. I either. objectively think she's a great artist and a great writer. Clearly, for a reason, she's yeah. popular. And it, she gets so much hate and vitriol from like men, but also like society as a whole, yeah. even from other women because of her <laughs> insane popularity. And do I think fandoms in general need to chill the fuck out a lot of times? Yeah. There's some weird stuff that See, happens I in fandoms wish I, of all times. I wish I, I also am like not a Swifty, but I do like a lot of her music. Yeah. I wish I was a Swifty yes. so that I could feel that intimate sense of belonging. Yes. In the same way that I wish I still believed in God. Uh, and a horse. <laughs> uh, but I was going to say with Taylor Swift, so she is like a beloved cat lady yeah. mm -hmm. or hated cat lady. And I heard something recently that was like a good test of whether a woman is a girl's girl is asking them, do you like Taylor Swift? If they love Taylor Swift, they're a girl's girl. Yeah. If they aren't a Taylor Swift fan, but are like, Still love her. Yeah. Love her impact on pop music. Mm -hmm. And objectively, music. she's talented. I love Swifties. Girls, girl. Yeah. Girls, women specifically, who are like, oh, I hate her. She's, oh, I just, there's something I don't like about her. Not a girl's girl. Not a girl's girl. And I feel cats are the same. Mm hmm. People who are like, I'm just more of a dog person, yeah. but I've never had a cat or like, mm -hmm. it's just not my preferred pet. That's typically where totally I Totally fine. Yeah. Except totally I am fine green flag. More. People who are like, I just hate cats. They're the worst. They're demonic. Red flag. Have you not seen the video of that cat attacking a dog who is attacking a child? Like defending There's this so many videos child like that. There's also to the cat, death almost. There's also a cat fighting off a pack of dogs yes. to protect another cat. Yes. I love them. When I had asked about like people's thoughts on this, um, a couple people responded about cat daddies. Mm -hmm. And we have been saying it's such a green flag when men love cats. Yeah. And I feel like women love men who love cats. Mm -hmm. Like, even if you're not a cat person, yeah. it's a green flag for yeah. a man to love a cat. Why are cat daddies seen so positively when they're literally exactly the same as cat mommies and women get such a bad stigma yeah. around it? I mean, I do think it is women who make cat daddies popular. Yeah. 
not other men. I think other men would be like, oh, you're a pussy. Yeah, exactly. And I do think it is because of the consent thing. Like whether we are consciously thinking of it or not, that's a man who has an animal who likely has very firm boundaries that they respect. Clearly not everybody because of the person you mentioned earlier. But they respect this animal's boundaries, especially when we see them being very loving with this cat. Like if we see that respect in action, that's like, I think it does translate subconsciously to like how they might treat us and respect our boundaries and our need for consent as well. Like I think it just suggests a greater understanding of consent. Yeah. For sure. I I also think there's like a subconscious, like even if you're not, it's Catterday. Catterday. The, the tornado, tornado sirens are going off. Tornadoes, they're real. We will pause briefly for the tornado sirens to go yeah. off. Ranger's probably unhappy. For anyone who doesn't live in Oklahoma, we get a lot of tornadoes in the spring. And so all year round, every Saturday, they test, noon, the, sirens. They test the tornado they sirens. In Texas, too. To make sure they're working. And mm-hmm. so, and um, we have our friend with the cat. We call her the Naderator. <laughs> that's literally her always, name in my phone. Yeah, the always Naderator. on top of Wenda. She's like, she goes outside and is like, it's Nader weather. And <laughs> <laughs> she's always right. Yeah. So, the other thing about like men. I feel like men with any kind of pet, it's the same I feel about like men with plants. Mm -hmm. Men who have animals and like things that they have to nurture Mm -hmm. consistently is a huge green flag for Mm -hmm. me because I think that's something for whatever societal reasons, Mm -hmm. I feel like men struggle a lot more with like consistent nurturing, like even when Mm -hmm. work is stressful, even when life gets busy, still finding ways to really care for the people in your life. I think Mm -hmm. there are tons of men who are great at that, but I think societally, (laughs) that tends to be more of a trait you see in women more consistently. Mm -hmm. And so when I see men who have like a really well-trained dog, rare plants, or like a small animal that they have to be really gentle with, Mm -hmm. I feel like it immediately indicates to me that they're nurturing and that they're capable of having a family, whether Mm -hmm. that's just a partner or kids or shared pets or like extended family Mm -hmm. and that that's something that they have the capacity for. Yeah. A good sign. And also I think the way anyone, men Mm -hmm. or women or non-binary people interacts with their pet tells you a lot about them. Yes. It's someone where you have to take care of them and also they can't speak Mm -hmm. to you. And it's also a a relationship where you can abuse that power. I think seeing how people interact with their pets is a really great like look into how they are in human relationships. I have unfollowed several pet accounts, particularly when they have small dogs. I haven't seen as many cat accounts where it's like, you clearly don't treat this cat right. Yeah. There are lots of small dog accounts where they are constantly, for content's sake, putting their small dog under stress. Yeah. Obviously, small dogs are snappier. I, Luna has snapped at me before. I will never get mad at her for it Mm -hmm. because it's usually like I did something, she felt threatened, and I would want you to defend yourself if someone was, you know, I want her to do the same and I want her to feel comfortable doing the same, which I think some people would consider me a bad dog mom, not training her. Sorry, (laughs) I'm going to let her keep the few self-protective things that she has. But there are so many accounts. I loved that one dog that ended up passing away kind of recently. Ow, ow, the ow, ow dog. 
I loved those some of those videos, but then when I went deeper into this account, it's like you are constantly stressing this dog out to get this type of reaction. Mm. There's another one who is really similar. Like in a lot of cases, she snaps at them when they're doing something normal and they're like, okay, you know, back off and they don't get mad at her for it. But there's some where it feels like you were trying to incite this type of reaction. Yeah. Because some people don't realize it's a stress reaction. Yeah. Or a frightened reaction and they think it's funny. Yeah. And enough people think it's funny where they get enough views and it gets popular and it yeah. is heartbreaking to watch because it's just like this dog's life yeah. is filled with stress and uncertainty about their yeah. own safety. And I think it's okay. Like, I feel like it's one of those things where like every pet owner understands like sometimes stuff happens, it stresses your dog yes. out, they do something silly and you laugh. Yeah. That I think is totally different. It's that you're doing it intentionally and profiting off yes. of it is when it gets weird. My mm-hmm. favorite pet account is... That little dog with the pointy ears where they just do spa day with it. That's oh, all, yes. all of their content is just giving their dog like the most luxurious is spa day. Is it the little Cedric or is it a Shiba? Yeah, it's that in one. And you or what? And they'd like scrub I thought it was called an Akita. I can't Akita. remember. Akitas are bigger, I think. I yeah. Think it's a Shiba It's so something. cute. And they give it a bath. Clearly it's so calm. A lot of times it'll fall asleep and it's like, that is so lovely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because it's our big fat 10th episode, we're so excited. Because it's the big 10th episode, we posted on the podcast Instagram and both of our individual Instagrams an AMA. Mm -hmm. I got quite a few questions back. And so we are going to answer all of your questions. Yeah. So the first question is from our friend Peyton, who we actually saw them Last night. Yesterday and, yeah. and talked about this. Mm-hmm. They asked us, will you both marry me? The answer is yes. yes. Uh, and I screenshotted that question and sent it to Maggie. And we both were like, thruple? We'd be the yeah, best thruple, thruple on her. <laughs> Love Peyton. Mm-hmm. Love you, Peyton. Next question. Not a question, but Amanda requested that we do more dancing videos, please. We just recorded one kind of impromptu before this. Yeah, we did. We have been discussing, like, it's kind of hard to maintain an energy level every Well, to get into the right headspace, you really have to switch on. When I was in college and had to do performances for piano, Mm -hmm. I had all these strategies to like get into this very consistent performance headspace. Yeah. And I was like, we should have like a routine where we we do this to get pumped up. And Mm -hmm. so today we danced to Dancing Queen by ABBA. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. I feel way better. (laughs) And I did the first TikTok that we made that was a dancing video. I did feel like an elder millennial on TikTok and I just cringed and hated it, but the people loved it. The people loved it. It was fun to record. It was fun to make. Posting it was less fun for me. So if you see a dancing video from us, please go put some love on it to make us feel better about it. I don't know why. It was the the first thing I posted where I was like, I hated that. The teens are going to be mean to us. (laughs) Yeah, but they were. Everyone loved it. Yeah. Okay. So this was a great question from Jake. What are the commonalities or through lines among the first 10 mad women that we've covered? Yeah. Because we've done a wide variety of both criminals, victims, but we always say like problematic women is kind of our focus diving into those stories. Here's one that I'm just thinking of. As someone who really likes true crime, I've heard a lot of stories about many criminals, most of them men, criminals, hauntings, paranormal, all of it. Yeah. As I've been doing research For this one and listening to you, I've seen the pattern that most people who end up doing really bad things are victims in some way first. Yeah. I think there are very few cases where someone is genuinely just 
evil yeah as far as murder and crime go in particular i think you know we get into espionage and politicians and billionaires that's different i think a lot of them you were privileged and spoiled for much of your life and you just think you deserve all this and it's terrible but with the types of people we talk about specifically the men in many cases i think of like ted bundy Mm -hmm. who did i think had traumatic childhoods they did Sometimes with some of these, like, serial killers, it's less that they were victims in the way, like, Eileen Warnos was, Mm -hmm. and more that they felt wronged by the lack of female attention, Mm. by women not liking them. We see so many school shooters who are like, this girl rejected me. A lot of it is based in this level of violent misogyny where they believe they have the right to women's attention and love and affection, even if they haven't earned it. And so you see people like men acting out in violence because they feel slighted. Like, slighted. Yeah. With a lot of the w- people we've talked about, the women, it seems more reactive to trauma and the need for survival. I think Mon Vassan, it was like a response to needing some way to support herself. Yeah. With Hatshepsut, it was, she wasn't really a criminal, but she was like, I am trying to gain and retain power in this patriarchal society. Yeah. A lot of it is very reactive to very terrible, terrible things, things that, that it's like someone genuinely, genuinely wronged you. It wasn't like you were rejected by a few women because they didn't like you and you were angry about it yeah. and you have been raised in such a, which in that sense, these men are also very much victims of a patriarchal misogynistic society. Yeah, I agree. And I also think there are tons of male criminals who had like really legitimate trauma. I think especially sexual predators often yes. have really severe trauma done to them in childhood very similar to like an Eileen Warnos. And I think I the one thing I've noticed in a lot of the stories we've told is that I feel like the common thread is these women are not ever portrayed in their wholeness. Like I think with yeah. men, there's this idea of the self-made man. And even if they're a self-made criminal man, we tell their whole story, like we tell their background. We want to know how they got here, what made them this way. Mm-hmm. And we tell the nuance of it. What happened to you that made you do this? And why are you this way? And yeah. What makes your brain think that way? And we tell that for successful man, men and for te- terrible mm-hmm. men. We give them that wholeness. A lot of times women who are like disruptive or the first to do something or they do something bad or they do something more typically associated with men, like mm-hmm. being a serial killer, we don't give them that. We just say that they're evil. Yeah. And I did someone recently we talked to was like, I knew about Eileen Warnos already, but I didn't know about all of her trauma. Yeah. I because like even like the documentaries and the portrayals of her skip over a lot of that. Yeah. And I think- Or just, just briefly mention it. Now you have way more female directors, still very yeah. low, but you have way more female directors. You have way more female writers than you did mm-hmm. even in the last like hundred years there's been a huge huge amount of progress there mm-hmm. i feel like because women are the ones telling stories we have a lot more depictions of that now than mm-hmm. we used to i feel kind of neutral about it to be honest because it's like when i hear a man's story i flatten him <laughs> sorry sorry to this man i always feel like well he's just a dumb man a lot of the times I just do that yeah. because it's not my experience and I don't really understand it. And I feel mm-hmm. like I can really sympathize with men, but I can't really empathize with their experience. I have a tendency even to like write men off much more easily. And I feel like men do that to women, mm-hmm. but also have the 
the societal patriarchal systems to back that up where mm-hmm. women don't have that. Yeah. That has been like the most common through line is that we're trying to really understand their perspective mm-hmm. and not just what people said about them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And to be clear, I wasn't saying that men criminals aren't victims of trauma. Yeah. I didn't think you were. Okay. It sounded like you thought I did. Attaching what I said to what you said. If you look at the most recent Dahmer docuseries, which I could not finish, a huge, huge, huge chunk of it is about his upbringing Mm -hmm. and how many times he was almost tried to get caught and almost did get caught. And because he was a white man and because many of his victims were gay and or black men, Mm -hmm. it was a total system failure. Yeah. But we had so much background. Like the whole thing, the whole docuseries was about showing this background. Mm -hmm. And even with very well done, there's like the one about Eileen Warnos. There's those two on Candy. I forget what her last name is. But there is significantly less time spent on the lead background. Yeah. Yeah. People are more interested in the fact that there's a woman doing a crime, a violent crime. I think the fascination with bad men Mm -hmm. is how did they become bad? Mm -hmm. And the fascination with bad women is just that they exist. It's just that they're bad. Yeah. And how they were bad, Mm -hmm. not why. Yeah. What is your favorite fictional female character from a book, movie, or TV show? That's from my sister, Catherine. Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. I feel like I probably have lots, and this is probably not the most mm-hmm. compelling, but one character I was surprised to really like was the main character of Persuasion by Jane Austen. I really liked her character. Mm-hmm. Jane Austen is an author where I feel like a lot of people kind of write her off as being fluffy and domestic. Mm-hmm. And that, I think it's her last book that she wrote, and it was mm-hmm. published posthumously, if I'm remembering correctly. And... The main character is content being on her own until Mm -hmm. she meets the love interest. Mm -hmm. And so like a lot of the tension of the story is coming from that she's surprised by liking him, which I haven't read this in a long time. So if I'm getting any of this wrong, I don't care. Yeah. And it's not my business and don't tell me. (laughs) Um, But I always liked that she was writing at a time when being single and I think the main character is around like 30 and she's still single at the time she was supposed to get married she Mm -hmm. had like a missed opportunity was the one that got away yeah and she did do a fair amount of pining Mm -hmm. but there's a a recent adaptation of it that was Dakota Johnson and I really I love Dakota Johnson I'm so sorry to say this but I really didn't like it because the focus was on her pining after him all these years and when I read the book I read it much more as like she really made peace mm-hmm. with it and moved on with her life and was like, well, it just wasn't meant to be and I'm yeah. happy where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a love interest comes into the story and kind of disrupts her life as she knows mm-hmm. it. And I thought it was a very fresh take for yeah. that time that I related to, I think, more than I would expect to from like yeah. such an old book written by a mm-hmm. female author. Yeah. Uh, that did remind me of one of mine. And I don't really watch a lot of TV, or movies, honestly. I mainly just rewatched Lord of the Rings, which, as we yeah, know, does say, not pass the test. <laughs> I just rewatched the same stuff. Yeah. I could say uh, Eowyn from Lord of the Rings, just because of, you know, yeah. I am no man. and But she doesn't get a lot of screen time at all. So I'm actually going to go with YA. It's not literary. For our non-readers, you know, like, that's I would young love adult. Young adult. 
you know, young adult I think fiction. a few years ago, post MFA, MFAs are really notorious for being like, if you write YA, fantasy or sci-fi or any genre fiction, you're not as good of a writer. It's not and, literary. Yes. So in grad school, I read all these books by <laughs> Sarah J. Mass. So I know, I'm sure there are Sarah J. Mass yeah. girlies. There's been some problematic stuff coming up about her lately. So I won't necessarily vouch for her as a person. But in one of her series, there is this character, Aelin. Spoiler alert, if you're reading it, don't listen to this part. As someone who grew up in the church, who read the books like Captivating, I mentioned a couple episodes ago about needing to be rescued. Anything I wrote in high school, the main girl character was like weak and fragile, but had a magical power and had to be protected. And there was a first love, you know, virginal, all of this stuff that I wanted to be growing up and I wanted to have an amazing first love. I end up reading this series in grad school and the main character, the person she ends up with is not either of her first loves who you see in the series. She goes through multiple relationships through the series. She's not a virgin when she meets this guy that she ends up being with. She's not weak. She's a fucking badass. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. Even though it's YA, plot-wise, it's one of the best like fantasy series I've read. And part of it is because her and another character, Manon, in this series are like my favorite female characters from fantasy because they are strong. They are imperfect. Mm-hmm. They are not sweet virginal people who need protection and the men they end up involved with are in awe of them and their power and their strength i'm at a point now where it's like that's kind of all like duh to me you know but at the time that i read it it was really game changing not only in how i saw characters and wrote my own characters but also in like how i saw myself it just fought against so many of the tropes you see in ya that i think are so harmful to young women that really praise fragility and virginal <laughs> first yeah. love and youth that I think often I really in a weird problematic like, often way in a weird problematic way and there are massive age gaps in her books which because there's Faye and they're hundreds of years old and stuff like that but they aren't portrayed as young weak right. women which I think the portrayal of youth more than the number uh, yeah. is really important in these in these series and in like particular. the power dynamic. And yeah. if I had read that when I was in high school, instead of a lot of the series yeah. I did read, I think I would have shaken myself out of that perceived need to be rescued and fragile yeah. and super feminine earlier because I would have had references that I could. Because yeah. that's so important when you're young, especially when you're a young teenager into your early 20s. You are using these references, whether you know it or not, from books and movies and to kind of like form who you are in your own identity. And so I just appreciate that series and those female characters a lot because I think the more young women read about female characters like that, yeah, the more a lot of women like me would be kind of moving out of this, I need to be fragile and rescued mindset earlier in life. Yeah. And also just less emphasis on first love and virginity, yeah, which is disgustingly common in YA. Yeah, it is. So not the example I thought I would give, but. This is another question from my sister, Catherine. Worst mm-hmm. female portrayal conversion from a book to a movie. And I actually have a strong opinion on this. I know. I know what yours is. Do you want to go first? Yeah, because I mentioned it yesterday. Yeah. Mine is Ginny Weasley. Uh-huh. And it wasn't Bonnie Wright. I want to be clear. Yeah. 
big fan of Bonnie Wright. Yeah, I love her. But I felt the way Ginny was written in the books was... So cool. First of all, her and Harry had a deep friendship before mm-hmm. they were ever romantically involved. Mm-hmm. She was at the very beginning portrayed as like the kid's sister. There's only a one year age gap. Like she was very much involved in mm-hmm. the friend group. Yeah. And she really was very opinionated. She was very outgoing. She was very mm-hmm. strong. She would give Harry shit. She would call him out on his shit. And he would be someone where if you went to school with him, it would be like occasionally be annoying to yeah. be his friend. Mm-hmm. And she was really the one that would call him out on it. Yeah. She was very smart. She was very brave. Mm -hmm. And in the movies, in very small ways, they have that character arc of her going from kind of like shy kid sister to powerful badass. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it was condensing the book to the movie. I feel like they cut out a lot of her very important scenes. Mm -hmm. And then the scenes that she was in, they used to move their romantic plot Mm -hmm. line. And so she really comes off as just the girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And just the sister. And I don't think they really captured her unique character points. In the book, she's like this really fully formed Mm -hmm. key character. And then in the movie, she's very much only portrayed in like her relation to the Mm -hmm. male characters. Yeah. Ron's sister Mm -hmm. and Harry's girlfriend. And she's just like a little awkward, a little shy. And I have read that Bonnie was like one of the youngest cast members. And that that had a lot to do with she just did feel a little intimidated around the other Mm -hmm. characters. I I don't know if that... It's true, but and it's mm-hmm. hard because I I have a huge crush on Bonnie, right? No, and she's I so love cool. her, and she is so she's cool. She's all like sustainable, like activist stuff. She now. also is someone who I think her presence is very like quiet. Yeah, but comes very off very earth. cool. Very yeah. Where I felt like Ginny came off really like shy, and that just wasn't how she no. read in the book. She was supposed to be super. That badass. was disappointing. Yeah. I also, this isn't my answer, but I also think Hermione too in some ways because in the books with Rita Skeeter and the Beatle and how she fought for house elf rights, I think she was a much more like social justice yeah. bitch in the books that I think we miss a little bit in the movies. Yeah, but, I agree. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't watch movies very often, so I'm like trying to think of more adaptions. I do keep thinking Lord of the Rings with Arwen and Eowyn. You know, the books are old. They also don't really have a massive representation of women in general. Yeah. And I haven't read them in a long time. With Arwen in particular, which do you need a reference to know who this is, which one this is? You don't remember because you've only seen them once, right? Do you remember who's who? I've seen them twice and nothing you say is going to make me recall. So just, this is for the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, for the Lord of the Rings people. So I really, really would have loved in the movies to see Arwen as more than just this because she's cool she does a cool thing she you know water horses blah 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 saves Frodo makes the decision to kind of like go against her father's wishes and come back and give up her immortality but their relationship in particular is flat you know when it's like are you guys friends like do you talk do you like have conversations do you go have fun with each other do you just hang out and goof around and not that they can show that always in a movie but it felt very much like I am just attracted to you physically but there's like I don't do you ever talk besides when you're just talking about how much you love each other I actually feel like a lot of female adaptations from books to movies that's the part that's missed and I think yeah it's like where's the friend chemistry I feel like a lot of times it is like the condensing the time and that's like seen as one of the less important things and it's right yeah and I think it would have even if there were just like one scene where they're talking not about their love for each other yeah other than when like she saves Frodo and he's like 
ride hard, whatever. I just think it could have made that a, a much more like in-depth relationship in yeah. particular. And I love these movies. I binge them all the time. But that's one thing I think of every time I watch it is like, I don't think y'all are friends. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. This one is from Carson. Okay. You freaky frighted with your bestie. What's the first thing you do in their body? And before you answer, there's only one correct answer. <laughs> Look at her boobs. No, there's only one oh. correct answer. And we're going to say it on the count of three. I don't know it. You freaky frighted with your best friend. Yeah. What's the first thing you're going to do? I just said, look at her boobs. My my answer is on the same vein. First of all, look at them naked. Yeah. Or, or like maybe have sex with my body. <laughs> <laughs> just to see what it's like. But as each other. That's the whole time. Doesn't count. We yeah. Body we're basically swap. having it's sex with ourselves. For science. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime we say something really inappropriate, my mom, my mom loves it. She always says not to censor ourselves. But anytime we say something like particularly inappropriate, my mom's like, I probably didn't need to hear that. My mom called me a potty mouth. <laughs> also, my mom has now recommended it to her friends who listen to us and love it. I don't know if my hilarious. mom will recommend it to her friends. But <laughs> I think her friends, sorry. some of her friends would be scandalized. Okay, this question is from Whitney. Who are your favorite fictional mad women? And he said, think Kissing Kate Barlow, Annie Wilkes, Corella DeVille, etc. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to go back to Haunting of Hill House. Well, not because like of the character. I can't even remember her name at this point specifically, but I love gothic horror and the lack of sense it makes. Yeah. Because the main character in that is taken by the house a little bit. Mm. And if I remember the ending correctly, runs your car into a tree or something like that. And I just like psychologically watching that devolvement happen. But if we're thinking like villainy, mad women, I've got to think. I am trying to remember the name of a movie. It was really, really popular. The Wife is Missing and the first half- Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Okay. I knew it. <laughs> that is one of my yes. favorites because- I literally got chills. Mm. If you haven't read it, the first half of the book is told from her husband's perspective. Yeah. And Very it's all well about done. her going missing. It's really great. That mm. part of it is like, oh, whoa, so mysterious. What's happening? Mm -hmm. And then you turn a page mm -hmm. and it's part two. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's from the missing wife's perspective. And yeah. you learn that she has run away and you get mm -hmm. her side of things. And it's like what you thought she was is like completely turned on its mm -hmm. head. And she is a little, like, evil. Yeah. Maybe not evil, but creepy. Yeah. And scary. Yeah. And I loved that. Because you're going along in the story thinking one thing. Mm -hmm. And when it switched, it was like flip switched. And I was yeah. like, ah! It was yeah. so good. I remember that one being really fun. Her other books are good, too. Yeah. That one yeah. was really fun. Yeah. Mine is from Foundation, the show, the sci-fi show oh, I've yeah. been telling you about. Some background. Again, if you're watching this show and you don't want spoilers, feel free to skip past this part. In Foundation, it's over several centuries that this story is spread out. And there is one character that stays consistent, and it's Demerzel. And she, you know pretty early on that she is a robot. Ooh. Which, this is Fun. thousands of years after the robot wars, which kind of suggest take place either on Earth or around Earth in like that planetary system. And the humans won, and then robots were banned, outlawed. So she survived and you kind of in the second season figure out why she's still there and her whole thing her programming is to serve empire which is the genetic dynasty so it's the clone and they just keep making more clones 
of the same emperor over hundreds of years. And her programming says to serve him. And from the very beginning, you can see something's like, you know, she's up to something. Uh-huh. I was like, maybe she's good. Maybe she's secretly working against the empire. Maybe she's trying to bring it down. And so she's not necessarily a flat character in season one, but you don't know her background. Mm-hmm. In the second season, you figure out that after the robot wars, one of the empire people, as a child, finds her. She's kind of split apart, pulled apart, but she's still conscious and has been in this chamber for like 10,000 years, Mm -hmm. just there, never turning off. He comes and visits her. She tells him stories and all that kind of stuff. Eventually puts her back together. She doesn't have the programming to serve the empire yet. He sets her free. There's some suggestion that she in a way genuinely loved him. And you kind of think that he might love her. And then he like sneaks this programming into her so that she now, she had like a two minute opportunity to bolt and she doesn't. She allows him to hug her, Mm -hmm. puts this programming into her and it's heartbreaking. I might cry again because you see the moment where she's like, I now have no choice. Yeah. He took all agency away from her. She cannot override this programming and she is destined to live forever because she's a robot. Yeah. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff about like how human is she? Yeah. And every time you see her show a blip of emotion about something, it then switches to where that's gone. And you're like, I don't know. I still can't tell how much of the emotion we see from her is real mm-hmm. and how much of it is her programming, knowing how to manipulate the people yeah. around her to protect Empire. That's cool. And at this point, she it's like, I think she doesn't fully want to be doing it. Yeah. So she's a villain But it just brings up so many different like questions and discussion points about sentience and human emotion. Now I'm wondering if we should do episodes on fictional people. I think we should because I would love to do like female cryptids and stuff too. Okay, so this was a question I submitted for you. Mm -hmm. What are you most proud of in the last year? This answer would have been really easy last year. I'm not going to cry surviving (laughs) and we've talked about this and for our listeners this year has been really really difficult I've really had to face the fact that my hyper independence and peace with solitude while I think it is I still have those things some of it has come from being in my comfort zone not putting myself out there as far as like I don't want to get hurt really distancing myself emotionally from a lot of friends because either they don't meet my needs and I'm like okay the only way I can be okay with that is to distance myself yeah. to not need as much to not care as much so I really got detached I think and this year that's been impossible to do <laughs> And so it's been really hard. It really has like flipped a lot of things on their head. A lot of the things I believed about myself and about the kind of life I want. I have something I'm afraid of losing, both with you and our friendship, but then just some other friends and groups that group dynamics are really, really hard. I talked to my counselor about that. They are a lot more triggering than one-on-one relationships are for various reasons. Lots of fear, lots of trauma responses this whole year. And so, yeah, honestly, and this is for all you people who feel like you have nothing to be proud of. I think I'm just proud. Oh no. I think I'm just proud I made it. Yeah. Through. I'm proud of you for that too. (laughs) Thanks. 
yeah, I'm, I'm proud of just being able to push through. It's, you know, if you, anyone is living with like specifically complex trauma and severe mental illness, it can be exhausting looking forward and knowing that that's going to be something that you're going to be fighting, if not forever, then definitely for a long time and wanting to keep going. I am proud of myself for making it and also proud of myself for kind of diving into why I'm having the intense trauma reactions I've been having this whole year and getting to the point where I am admitting finally that I'm a lot more affected by my friendship trauma in particular than I thought or want to admit. And I know that's the first step to getting onto the other side of this. Mm -hmm. I left you a question. What are your hopes and dreams for this time next year? Yeah, that's a perfect timing because I think I told you I just had done my dad sent me a TED talk. Mm -hmm. The topic was time management, but from a perspective of prioritizing your time rather than trying to like create time from being efficient. Mm -hmm. She had like an exercise that she suggested at the end instead of setting goals for the coming year, which I usually do at the beginning Mm -hmm. of every year. And she suggested giving yourself a performance review for the end of 2024 as if things went really great and you're really proud of yourself and to segment it into like your professional life, yourself and your relationships. Mm -hmm. So I did that exercise. I won't talk through everything, but I did that exercise and it was really helpful. So I suggest doing it. It was helpful to envision the best case scenario. I tend to just think about what could go wrong and like what could get in the way, which I think can be helpful in being realistic. Mm -hmm. But I also think I have a really hard time imagining things going right. Mm -hmm. I felt really good after the exercise to think through the coming year and like what could go really well for me. Mm -hmm. And it also brought up what is important to me and what isn't. Yeah. Um, Like especially with relationships, I've been like struggling with that a lot lately, just with like getting back into dating. And I was kind of surprised what came up for me in that I wasn't really like trying to be in a relationship or trying to be single. It really didn't seem to matter when I was actually thinking about it. It was more just that I feel good with whatever is. Yeah. Really making peace with whatever romantic relationships I have. And that I honestly talked a lot more about my friendships and my family relationships than anything else. And Mm -hmm. in a general sense, my hopes and dreams for the year, I feel like this last year was one of the more difficult years of my life. And I think when you go through like something difficult, like a divorce and just like a huge life change, I moved. There was like a period of time where I was like, I literally don't even recognize anything about my life right now. It's just kind of like a jarring year. Yeah. And a lot of it felt like I was just like you said, like just trying to get through it. And now I feel like I'm starting to get to a place where I got through it. Now what? I think having hopes and dreams. (laughs) Yeah. Is maybe like part of the goal of really envisioning like, okay, I've, I've come to terms more with that. This is my reality moving forward and I've made peace with a lot of things that have happened in the last year and I think Mm -hmm. now it's like okay now what what is my life gonna look like what Mm -hmm. do I want to do career-wise I also just quit my job so I'm kind of at another turning point and it Mm -hmm. feels like there's endless possibilities of what I could Mm -hmm. do with my life right now I would love to get to the end of the year and feel this is why all of this happened yeah this is why I needed to be here and even like that we're starting 
this podcast and we both feel so passionately about it. And I would love to for something to come of that. I would love to be able to freelance again and, and have like some sort of financial success with that. And to feel like I got to the end of the year and okay, this really hard thing happened and I had a really tough mm-hmm. season and this is why. Okay. Thank you, Whitney, for subscribing to our Patreon. This yes. Week. Yeah. Our newest Patreon member. And Whitney sent us a lovely message. Well, he sent me a lovely message, but to both of us. Yeah. So thanks, Whitney. Love you. <laughs> Where to find us? Yeah. Instagram and TikTok, madwomaninthealtic.pod. We post clips almost every day. Yeah. <laughs> and we have some fun stuff coming up. We have our first monthly meeting this coming Tuesday where yes. we're going to talk about our hopes and dreams for the podcast for 2024. Yeah. So. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts, baby. Bitches. Oh, <laughs> sure. Cats. Um, <laughs> meow, meow. And then you can also find us at our website where we have our merch store is live. We have stickers there if you want to buy one. Yep. At madwomaninthealtic.com. And then we have our Patreon. You can subscribe for three or six dollars. Three dollars is just to support us if you love listening to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Six dollars, you can watch the videos every week, which are super fun yeah and a lot of work to produce yeah <laughs> uh and that's take pity upon me that's only six dollars a month and that's at patreon.com slash bad woman in the attic yeah pod and that's all folks yeah like rate subscribe we just got our spotify rap stuff and a lot oh. of y'all have left five star ratings a lot of y'all we are in your top 10 or five podcasts there's been at least a few where we're the top podcasts and that has been so so lovely yeah. i want the notification actually that says here is where you were in the charts at one point i do too so we have big dreams for the podcast share. and even if it's like you are number 50 on the top 50 for one week <laughs> you know whatever if we are in your top podcasts especially share with people you know will like it and we were really excited to include like questions and include people's yes. opinions in this episode and it does feel like a huge milestone to get to 10 episodes mm-hmm. i wrote a really weepy instagram post on our instagram the other day yeah. when we got that podcast stuff but we both just talked about what this year was like for us i feel like mm-hmm. the reason we started this was because we both have felt really lonely in moments this year and isolated even though we have big beautiful lives mm-hmm and big, beautiful brains and big, beautiful, beautiful boobs and tits. <laughs> I think I had said in the caption, it's been one of the most special experiences of our lives. And we both really mean that. And I feel like we've been catching ourselves a lot more often when we just go out and get drinks or go out and get food together or just not working, just doing friend stuff because we're friends that we've been talking a lot about how special this has been. It's a creative outlet for both of us to be able to tell stories and do research. And like the writing part of it has been so fun for each of us. Mm-hmm. As writers, that's something that we just enjoy. Mm-hmm. It's been a fun part of our friendship that we get to have important conversations and and have that be kind of a job for us now. Yeah. We have been so happy to have each other to talk to, about these things with. Mm-hmm. And when we feel really lonely and when life gets a little hard, we always have each other to talk about it with. Mm-hmm. The driving force of why we started this And this is a rare moment where I'm going to get emotional. I think we started this because we're not the only ones who feel that way. Whether you're married and have a million kids or you're alone and don't have friends in this season of life or you've lost important people to you, I think it can just... Or you have friends and your brain doesn't want to admit that they might actually like you. (laughs) Or yeah, like I feel like we're both people who are surrounded by communities that love us and it can still just be really hard 
to yeah. figure things out and to to be happy and to know what you want out of life. Mm-hmm. It's just hard sometimes to navigate. And I think being able to talk about it openly and maybe mm-hmm. share things that are super personal to us. <laughs> but I think we've already seen how so many people have related to that. Mm-hmm. Getting to have those conversations with more people than just the two of us has been yeah. like really, really awesome. <laughs> reassuring about humanity and I know it's made me feel a lot less alone in some things even just the number of people who have messaged me who I haven't talked to in years who said like hey I I noticed from the stuff you said on the podcast that you went through a divorce this year and I went through a divorce and that was really hard and if you ever want to talk I'm here several people have sent me Mm -hmm. that message for everything that we talk about here I think there's so many people who can relate it just feels a lot less lonely when you know that yeah and I think on the days that are really hard being able to remember like hey so and so also went through this and mm-hmm. and maybe I can call them and talk to them about it or there's yeah. people who understand what I'm feeling and it's not just me there isn't something wrong with me that's mm-hmm. that's making me feel this way or making my life be this way yeah. I think can be really reassuring we just really both appreciate so much that there's this tiny little mad woman community forming. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just like surface level internet bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> that we're actually um, really all finding this common human force. Yeah. That's my little gushy thing to say. And I didn't cry. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but what's new? <laughs> and if you don't have a cat, there's so many of them out there. They're just like always this procreating. Just go get one. Just go find one on Come the street. Come to my yard. There are so many. Go find one on the street. That's that what I did. little homes. Oh, oh, oh meow, meow. Huh? huh? <laughs> I was going to meow. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Okay. Meow, 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 meow. Let's go, cats. <laughs> And then we just start scatting. Bye. Bye. Love ya. Love ya. Meow. Meow. (laughs) (laughs) More dates. I looked up and you were looking at the camera like. (laughs) I I really, what I was doing was feeling my retainers. (laughs) I was feeling my retainers in my mouth. Oh, got it, got it, got it. (laughs) Whoa. Okay, this episode isn't about you, Luna. Yeah. Relax, dog. Uh, <laughs> she's like, excuse me, I would like to say something on behalf of the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a very good spokesperson for your for your kind, Luna.